Section 19 of An American Vendetta. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Philip Aldred in Nottingham, UK. An American Vendetta A Story of Barbarism in the United States by T. C. Crawford Chapter 11, Part 5 The horsemen by this time disappeared. We followed cautiously after them. They dismounted when they were within thirty rods of the Hatfield house and tied their horses in the neighbouring woods. There, one or two men were left on guard. An order or two was given, and the men separated in the darkness. It was evident that they were given orders to surround the house. Sam Hatfield, evidently, was not to be taken absolutely by surprise, for the surrounding party had not taken over a dozen steps when the crack of a Winchester was heard, in the neighbourhood of the house, the singing of a bullet, and then the sound of flying feet and slamming of a door. The outside sentry had fired a signal of alarm and had taken refuge in the house. The firing instantly became general. The attacking party fired round after round at the house. This continued for upwards of half an hour, Shots from the house were returned, then there was silence. Evidently the invading party had devised some new plan of attack. What this was, was soon made apparent. While attracting the attention of the besiegers by a pretended attack at the front of the house, one or two of the McCoys ran up from the rear and set fire to the building. There were no women in Sam Hatfield's family at that time. His wife had deserted him some three months before because of his cruel treatment. The moment the house was fired, the light shingles caught like tow. The hole was in a flame in a moment, lighting up with a vivid glare the clear and open glade in which the house was situated. The Hatfields saw in a moment that their only chance was in a charge to break through the line. While two or three kept up a rattling fire from the front, the door to the back part of the house was opened, and in a moment ten men came rushing out, running swiftly as possible to the woods thirty rods away. Instantly the fire of the attacking party was concentrated upon the Hadfields. One or two of the inmates of the house fell. Just as the party reached the woods, a third Hatfield was winged and dropped to the ground. The firing ceased when the survivors of the party reached the woods. We were not near enough to hear what was said. The leader of the attacking party had the three bodies brought together and laid in a row. We were not near enough to recognise any of the fallen, 
and the captain would not listen for a moment to my proposition to walk up and inquire. He said, Those gentlemen are engaged in a very serious business, and no matter who comes up now, he will simply be regarded as a spy, and the safest thing for us to do is to get back to that house and get off of this year road. We made our way back as quietly as possible, and there we found Mrs. von Bergen awake, standing outside, near the door, in company with the doctor. She was greatly excited over the terrible picture of the night attack and the burning of the house. We explained to her what had occurred, without suggesting the captain's share in the performance. The doctor said with a very grim smile, Mrs. von Bergen, your mission here seems to be very successful. The squatters on our property seem to be swept away, and if I could have any assurance of the Hatfields' leaders that none of them would ever come back to that property, I would buy it of you. The doctor added, The Hatfields will shoot and kill but they won't steal or lie. Squatting on other people's land they regard as a natural right, but I never knew a Hatfield to break his word. If one of them should say he was going to kill me, I should go out and select my place in the family lot to get ready. They have a strange way of keeping their word under all circumstances. None of us thought of sleep after this horrible affair, which from the beginning to the close had occupied fully two hours. If I had more imagination, I suppose that I would be able to give you a very dramatic picture of this scene. But I can only tell it in my plain way, and leave it to you to supply what is necessary for the picture from your own imagination. About two o'clock, startled by hearing the tramp of a horse's feet outside and then a call of, Hello! The captain went to the door and answered back, Hello! Some words were passed between him and the outside caller. He disappeared for some moments in the darkness then he came back hastily and said, Do you know who's outside? It's Sam Hatfield. Two of his friends have got him here on a horse. He'd been very hard hit, but the boys got him away, and just now they are looking for shelter. He's bled a heap, and they think unless they can get him in near a fire right away and get some liquor down his throat, he will die. I ran in here just to warn you, for they're coming in here slow. A moment after, the door opened again, and there entered two brawny mountaineers with Winchesters on their backs, one man supporting the head and shoulders, the other carrying the feet of the wounded man. He was placed in front of the fire and propped up by a rug. I have a good deal of experience in the army, and I examined the wounded man 
with a great deal of interest. He'd been shot in the side, he'd bled profusely, and it was evident from his condition that he was also bleeding inwardly. The chill which he felt outside was the coming rigor of death. I suppose a dramatic writer would find much material for a picture in the scene which was presented around this dying man. Here at his right, kneeling with the devotion and attention of a sister of charity, was one of the most refined and accomplished women of Vienna society. The Irish doctor was on the other side, feeding the wounded man teaspoonfuls of whisky through his blue lips and set teeth. I kept my hand on the wounded man's pulse. Two mountaineers stood back with their hats doffed. From the expression upon their faces, I realised that our opinion of these mountain fighters had been too harsh. Certainly men could not be entirely bad who looked with such loyalty and tenderness upon the face of a dying comrade. After a few moments, the stimulation had its effect. The dying man revived and looked with true mountain suspicion at the unusual faces around him. His dimmed and blurring eyes cleared with a look of recognition as he recognised the Irish Dr Palmer. Hello, Doc. Is that you? he said. What are you doing here? At this question the doctor's face flushed up with a look of benevolence, and then with keenest business, as he said, Sam Hatfield, you have always been considered in this country a brave man. Now, Sam, he says, I suppose you would like to know the truth about yourself. Yes, Doctor. Well, Sam, if you've got any messages for your home people, you better send them now, for you haven't got more than an hour to live. The wounded man's face never changed. He listened as if he had received the most indifferent information. He looked to the tallest of the mountaineers who was near him, and he came instantly and bent over him. The dying man said, It was Jefferson McCoy who led the attack on that house. I seed him as he came up in the light. You pass around the word for the boys, and see that he is wiped out within the next twenty-four hours. That is all I ask of you fellows. He then turned to the doctor, as if he had arranged all his earthly affairs, and was ready to proceed with a clear conscience to the other world for judgment. Then the doctor said, Sam, I want to ask a favour of you. It isn't much. The dying man was growing weaker. He attempted to reply, and his voice failed him. More whisky was given him. He revived, but after a longer interval. 
The doctor then spoke rapidly and said, Sam, I've always treated you square. Now I want to ask something of you. This here land where you've been living belongs to this little lady here. The dying man began to scowl, but the doctor went on. It's her land, Sam, and I want to ask you as a favour if you will pass the word to the Hatfields to keep off of it in the future. Your word, Sam, given now, is just as good title as I will ask to it. The dying man paused for a few moments before making his reply. He then beckoned to the other mountaineer and said, Tell all the Hatfield boys to do as the doctor wants. I shall not describe the dying scene. Sam Hatfield was dead within half an hour. When we left early in the morning to return, there was a great congregation of Hatfields about the house, all armed. They came to bury the dead and swear vengeance against the living. The return ride to Logan Courthouse was made within two hours. I shall condense my story now, so as to give you its conclusion as briefly as possible. At two o'clock on the third day of Mrs. von Bergen's visit to this country, the Irish doctor gave her a certified cheque on a New York bank for $25,000. I escorted her out of that horrible country, leaving early that afternoon. By an unmerciful ride we reached Brownsville that night, in time to catch the early morning train, which came along at two o'clock in the morning. When the railroad was reached, I could not bid Mrs. von Bergen goodbye. I asked permission to accompany her to New York. The next day, seated in a comfortable drawing-room coach, Mrs. von Bergen rallied from the fatigue of her exhausting journey and was able to talk more about herself. You have been so faithful to a perfect stranger I did not like her accent upon the word stranger, that I feel it my duty to confide to you the secret reason of my hurried visit to Logan County and my still more hurried return. For if I am not in New York by tomorrow morning, if any accident should happen which should delay my arrival there, the whole object of my journey would be a failure. The matter is very simple, although I have made such a mystery of it. My only brother, who has been all in all to me since my husband died one year ago, he was the executor of my husband's estate, in settling it up we found that my husband was not a good man, but a very dishonest one. I can but speak plainly of him now. He had begun a series of fraudulent transactions in which my brother had been involved through his confidence in my husband. When my brother discovered the fraud, he sold everything he had 
to take up my husband's forgeries. He was able to get up the greater portion of them. The balance, amounting to $15,000, is due tomorrow. If not taken up, the forgeries are certain to be discovered and my noble brother disgraced and, I am sure, imprisoned. I know he would not survive such disgrace, but would kill himself sooner than endure such injustice. I came here as a last desperate resource to save him. I have been delayed beyond measure. How his heart must be bursting with the agony of suspense. He must have given up all hope by this time. The next morning we left the train at Jersey City at seven o'clock. The banks were not open until nine. It would have to be sharp work, as nine o'clock in New York is half past two in the afternoon Vienna time. The banks there close at four, just one hour and a half to reach him. I tried to get my companion to take some breakfast as we waited but she could only swallow a cup of coffee. Pallid with fatigue and lack of sleep, she would not rest until we had reached the bank of Kessler & Co., where I was known. At nine o'clock sharp, after an hour's waiting in the street, we entered the bank. I explained to the alert cashier, whom I knew, in a word, ask no questions, said I, but prepare a cable credit on Vienna at once for instantaneous transmission of $15,000. It involves a question of financial honour. It must be there before the banks close. It will be, said the alert clerk, without the least sign of excitement. Thank God for the Atlantic cables and for alert cashiers who understand with half a word. An operator in the bank opened his instrument and called the cable office. Click, click went the instrument, and then, under special instructions, the following message was rushed through to Vienna, via Havre and Paris. Rothschilds & Co. Vienna Place to credit Kasper Steinmetz $15,000 Kessler & Co. Kasper Steinmetz, 8 Blumenstrasse, Vienna. $15,000 to your credit at Rothschilds. Kessler & Co. Two hours later, Mrs. von Bergen shed tears and nearly broke down as she received the following. Mrs. von Bergen Albemarle Hotel, M.Y. Saved. God bless you. Casper. The commercial traveller was silent for a moment. And then he added, I saw my fellow countrywoman on board one of the German Lloyd steamers the next day. I watched her through blinding tears as she waved her hand free from the deck of the swiftly departing vessel. He then added, 
I had never seen her since. Then, after a moment, but I hope too soon. This is my last trip to this country. Through some kind influence, I have been restored to my former place in the army, and I have enough saved now to sustain the place. By this time next month, I hope to be in Vienna with my old uniform upon my back. What more, he hoped, I could not venture to say. But from the look of pleasant rumination upon his face, I am sure his hopes were agreeable ones, and I sincerely trust the gallant fellow was disappointed in none of them. End of section 19